0: Our next speaker is Dr. Margo Krasnov. She's a geriatrician um, and clinical, clinician educator um, on the general internal medicine team at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And she's a professor for medical residents and students at the Geisel School of Medicine. Uh, she graduated from Dartmouth College and from Geisel School of Medicine, which at the time was Dartmouth Medical School. And Dr. Krasnov did her residency in internal medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And she's board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and hospice and palliative care medicine. She's practiced it in Ludlow, Vermont, and Buffalo, New York, and has been on the faculty at Dartmouth for over 20 years. So she's very, very familiar with this area.
1: (laughs) Okay, excellent. Can people hear me in the back? Okay, because I'm going to try to leave the mic on the um, special headset here. Okay, so... um, there's so many questions that have been raised in the prior presentation, so saying, well, Margot take care of this, Margot take care of that. Well, I tell you, that's a big, tall order of business. Um, so I am a practicing physician, you know, not a pain specialist, and I've been duped and scammed many times, okay? I just want to put it out there, um, and I'm going to talk about some steps to try to help help prevent this from happening, but it's it's really a very, very challenging situation. And the first thing I'm going to talk about, well, one thing I will be talking about is something called the 10 steps of universal precautions. And to prepare for this conference, I read a stack of materials like this. And I really like this concept of universal precautions because I've been a doctor for a long time. In fact, when I went to medical school, we did, it was before the AIDS epidemic started. And we did not wear gloves when we drew blood or touched people with wounds. Okay, we had other old timers in the crowd. So we, um, you had this idea that if you thought someone was high risk, then you'd put on gloves. But when the AIDS epidemic came, it became clear that how do you know if someone's high risk? Anyone could have HIV disease. So there was a paradigm shift of using universal precautions for blood and body fluids. So the idea was you used gloves for everybody. You didn't discriminate, um, and you didn't try to do a risk assessment in your head. Oh, maybe this person has hepatitis, maybe that person has hepatitis. So the same concept of a universal precaution can be used when dealing with opiates because there's a parallel there. Opiates are risky, and you can't tell by looking at the person whether someone is going to divert from you and you can't tell if the person is at risk for a substance abuse problem. So I will be describing that. I'll also provide some strategies to avoid what I call the pitfall of unintentional chronic therapy, when people are prescribed opiates for a short term, but somehow it morphs into long-term opiate therapy. So I see heads nodding. This is a common problem that I face in my practice. And I will talk about urine drug tests. And I learned a lot about them to prepare this talk. I'm not an expert toxicologist, but I know when to call one. Okay. So, in terms of risk awareness, what we all recognize is that for all the people out there who spiral into addiction, or to, who die from an overdose of opiates, they had some form of initial exposure. And that initial exposure usually involves opioids that they got from a prescription. The people did not get it by robbing a drugstore or going to manufacture and stealing drugs. Somehow it entered the stream through a prescription. In terms of safe prescribing, it's a team effort. And I'm so delighted to see that we have so many members of the multidisciplinary team here today. And we really need, in our office situations, the whole team to be on board, from the person who answers the phone to the nurse to the pharmacist that we work with. We all have to be understanding what the program is and having a unified message. And we have a lot of challenges out there. First challenge is that patients will often request opiates, but they underappreciate the potential for harm. And secondly, opiates are really effective for acute pain, But we know that not all persistent pain actually gets better with opiates. And that's a really important point that Lisa talked about, which is setting the right expectation for persistent pain. And lastly, it takes a lot less time to diagnose pain and prescribe an opiate than it does to deal with addiction. It takes a lot of time. And I'm delighted to hear that there's programs on addiction. I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, we're in the upper valley, we don't have addiction problems. That is false. We have all kinds of addiction problems, and it's really up to us to learn more about how to recognize and treat addictions. And in terms of persistent pain, just in terms of a definition, we used to talk about chronic pain, but there's a lot of stigma saying someone so is a chronic pain patient. So now we try to use the term a persistent pain problem. And by definition, it's a situation where the cause of the pain can't be removed or otherwise treated. And like Lisa said, these are... long-term problems. Arthritis, number one. It's just spinal stenosis. These things are not going to go away. They're really kind of intractable. And sometimes people have what we call persistent pain, and you can't find why it hurts. In other words, there's no demonstrable uh, tissue pathology, but yet they hurt, and we need to address the pain. So it becomes very complex. Now, these are the basics of doing it right. We really need to have assigned treatment agreement with the patient. And this is mandatory, where I work at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, when we have patients that are on long-term opiate therapy. We need to understand the use of urine drug testing, UDT. at Random urine drug testing would be part of the program of prescribing medication. And I view this as a clinical tool. It's not a pejorative thing. I'm not trying to catch people, but it's a clinical tool similar to prescribing opiates as a clinical tool. People need to have regular visits for their pain and documentation. Um, the physician raised the question about feeling like she's in a community where a lot of people are getting a lot of opiates and sometimes people are getting them without visits that actually document what's wrong and what the treatment is for. And our pharmacist will be talking this afternoon about state prescription monitoring programs. Um, 42 states in the country have them. Vermont has them. Are there any Vermont prescribers? Yes. Have you folks gone on the database? What do you think about it? It's mandatory. mandatory. What do you think? It's amazing. How is it amazing it's for you?
0: It's very helpful. Um, I'm an orthopedic nurse, and so you know we get a lot of people that we don't know, uh-huh. and it's very helpful before we prescribe to check the monitoring system because it's amazing how many people forget what kind of medicine they on. Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, I, I worked at Hitchcock, so most of my time spent taking care of patients in New Hampshire, but I also have my license in Vermont, so I recently signed up, and I'm on the database right now, and I think it's just totally awesome. Um, I went to a presentation in Concord about a month ago, and New Hampshire has gotten it. I mean, it's been approved, but the problem is it has not been funded. Yeah. So it's going to slowly ramp up. They recognize that they're behind the behind the national curve. I mean, so many 42 states have them. So I think it will be coming in the next few years, and, and um, our pharmacists will be talking about that more. So And also, um, when I was signing up for my Vermont one, they put in my wrong DEA number, so I actually called the national place where this all happens. And she explained that Maine also has an active system, and the Maine system and the Vermont do not talk to each other now. Yeah, which is an issue. But they hope that when they get the New Hampshire one that there will be uh, collaboration. So that will be doing it right, for sure. So what's our role? We have, uh, my uh, friend of mine, Christina Nicolaitis, uh, made this slide. And I borrowed it from her with her permission. Because here we are. We're clinicians. We want to do the right thing as clinicians. But when we're dealing with opiates, we often get an uncomfortable role of police officers. And the, the picture on the left with the fish, that talks about, let's make a deal. It often feels like that when you're a prescriber, because sometimes the patients will come in and they will make their pain sound really, really bad, terrible, awful. So they're trying to get more opiate. And oftentimes we're in the position of kind of wanting to give less opiate. So it becomes this, like, deal back and forth. As a prescriber, this can be really uncomfortable. Probably not so much with my frail seniors, but I take care of some, like, um, middle-aged people like in our generation as well, where sometimes we get into this um, back and forth about the, the amount of the dose. And then lastly, it's tricky when you beca- try to become the judge. Is this a good patient, deserving of treatment, or are there um, bad behaviors here? And it becomes really, really uh, problematic. So Dr. Nicolaitis came up with a new framework, which I'll talk about at the end of the talk, to try to get out of some of these roles on the right and try to keep our focus as clinicians on the left. And why are opiates such a uh, chosen drug of abuse? So, I when mean, we know Steve talked about alcohol, um, which we think of as something that makes you feel kind of mellow and relaxed, well, opiates are considered brain rewarders. They produce an acute surge of dopamine that travels from the midbrain to the prefrontal cortex, and users feel a sense of euphoria similar to heroin. And the street value is determined by the dopamine surge. So as with other things in life, the trade name is of higher value than generics. Um, Drugs are prized that have fast action, that are really intense, high intensity of their effect. And if they can be used intravenously or or smoked, they're of higher value than something that's just simply a pill. So that's a little bit of the background on why people sometimes come in and want certain drugs rather than others. Now, in terms of the universal precautions, the people who came up with this made it into 10 steps because I think 10 is kind of trendy, but it's really, I think, to my own thinking about like seven. So I'm going to focus on what I think are like the main seven, but it is kind of like the 10 steps. Okay, number one, and this is like first and foremost, you need to make a diagnosis to address the condition that's causing the pain. Kind of try to figure out what you're trying to fix. Um, everyone needs a psychological assessment, including the risk of addictive disorders, which I'll go over. Informed consent, this is a treatment, so there are risks and benefits, and we need to go through an informed consent process. Um, I'm gonna talk at length about patient-prescriber treatment agreements. The old term was narcotic contract. It's kind of shifted away from that to looking at a treatment agreement. Um, And then pre and post assessments of pain and level of function, because we're using pain medicine to help improve function. First, I put this in red, a trial of opioid. This is probably like one of the key points of the whole talk, which is that when we prescribe opiates, it's not forever. We're trying this therapy. We're trying it to see if it's gonna help make the pain condition feel better and to improve the level of function. And we're always gonna use some form of adjunctive medication. And Lisa went through the Tylenol, We talked about acupuncture. I'm a really big believer in physical therapy, exercise, that it's not just about the opiate. It's about the overall pain program. Um, Every visit uh, assess a pain score and a level of function. And then something that they came up with called the four A's, which I think is actually pretty good, and I'm going to incorporate this now because I could remember that, four A's. Um, Analgesia, activity, any adverse reactions – and then any aberrant behavior. And I'm gonna give lots of examples of aberrant behavior, but I think we, I can remember that. Analgesia, activity, adverse reactions, and aberrant behavior. And I think that relates to anyone's practice. If you were a home care nurse and you were assessing pain, you could do that. Uh, social worker talking about pain medication. I think it's kind of a handy framework. And then we go back to the underlying condition. We've got to keep assessing that, because that could get worse over time, like if someone has osteoarthritis, the arthritis could be getting worse. And in the case I'm going to go over, life happens, people fall down, they get fractures. New, new pains get top, piled on top of old pains. And then um, lastly, document the medical management of pain following your state guidelines. And This is where prescribers need to go onto their state medical society and look at the guidelines. In Vermont, have you guys seen the Vermont white paper that they came out with? I think it's really informative in terms of the state of Vermont, a whole bunch of providers got together and they came up with this white paper, it's about 30 pages long, really looking as a state, what are we doing about pain, how do we prevent diversion, what kind of treatments we have available. They address urine drug testing in there, Um, and if you go on the New Hampshire uh, website, They talk, they have examples of pain contracts, examples of um, um, uh, addiction assessment and management, uh, lots and lots of useful tools. I was really impressed actually looking at um, both states' websites. And those were tools that I didn't even know about. So in terms of this uh, risk assessment, uh, is there a personal history of alcohol or drug abuse? Is there a family history? And does the person have a major psychiatric disorder? So kind of three main things to consider. And of course the red flag is people who are abusing substances are not often going to tell you that they're abusing substances. I mean, that's kind of, they consider that private information. But I also want to talk about the corollary, which is that I take care of quite a few patients who have been there. They've had an addiction in the past. And they make it really clear when they come in that they do not want an opiate. Um, They kind of make it up front, clear to me up front, and then we kind of manage things that come along kind of in a drug-free way. So um, that's another kind of corollary of the history, which is that some people are are very uh, open about sharing their uh, history of prior substance abuse. So let's get into the informed consent part of those ten steps, and this is where you really need to go down these things one by one so that patients understand what they're getting into. And I would definitely, if I have a, an elder, i bring in a family member to have this conversation so that everyone is aware up front. Um, what are some of the physical side effects of the opiate? Talking about sedation and how that would increase the risk to fall. Talking about constipation and how we're going to manage that. Talking about physical dependence. How does that all come about? What does tolerance mean? That the dose we use today, a person may get used to it, and may need a dose escalation in the future. I talk about addiction, and what does addiction mean? What is it? What is it not? And I try to partner with the patient and talk with them about how they could recognize addiction. And often the first warning sign is cravings. Cravings and the desire to use the medication sooner than the time interval that was prescribed. We talk about hyperalgesia, where the opiate can actually make the pain worse. And that's like a shock when you say that to someone. That not, all, not only do opiates not make all pain better, it can make pain worse, and that would be a reason to stop the treatment. Overdose. We are all are aware of that. In young women, of course, talking to, risk to about risk to unborn children, and victimization. We're all familiar with the types of um, Situations that older people don't think about that someone may actually want to steal their medication their money um, They might want to go in their apartment that they have to be kind of I tell them They have to be a little bit private about this medication You don't want to let a lot of people know that it's in your pocketbook because other people may want your pocketbook and I'll talk about that in terms of some of my um, uh, case examples I always talk about driving Because that comes up, people want to take opiates and drive, and they're at increased risk for having driving mistakes when the opiates are first started or when doses are increased. And some of the ways that this goes happens are through slower reaction time, drowsiness, clouded judgment, or mentation. So, a general guideline is for people to limit their driving the first week that the opiate is prescribed or that the dose is increased. Sometimes think they're that if they're on opiate, they can never drive again, and that's not true. But it has to be individualized to a certain extent. Now, this is the really key part of that opiate treatment agreement, and this is the part on the patient responsibilities, because this is a there's a long list of responsibilities, and I'll just go through them one by one, that the patient needs to use their medication only as prescribed, and no dose increases on their own. If they feel they need an increase in dose, they need to call the office. So you're trying to put some limits on the misuse right from the outset. Second, they're not allowed to share, sell, trade, or in any other way provide their medication to another person. But that's a really key part. Um, They must receive their opiates from this practice and this practice only. So let's say I'm treating them for their arthritis and they go to the they fall and they go to the emergency department or they go to orthopedics. They need to call the office and let us know if anyone else prescribes their opiates. Um, they also have to agree to fill their opiate prescription at one pharmacy only. So I think if, I don't know, it sounds like in Vermont where people are aware of the, um, uh, the physician monitoring program that they still go from pharmacy to pharmacy. No, you're not seeing that? They're, go- they're sticking with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I've looked at some people. I've, see, I, I work in Hanover, so I have some people. I have like a f- person who lives in Springfield, and I noticed when I looked him up that he was going to a few different uh, pharmacies. And I hear stories like, well, this drugstore was closed, so I went to another drugstore, and I know the pharmacists will talk about this more. But we try to put that up front that they are really only supposed to go to one pharmacy. And. Pardon? It says it on the prescription. Fill That is a really good tip. What did she say? What she said is that she has it right on her prescription that fill at prescription uh, pharmacy X only. That's a really awesome, thank you for sharing that. Um, that they need to keep their uh, medications locked up. That they have to understand that when we prescribe the opiates, we may ask them to bring the opiates in for a pill count. And they need to discard if any unused medications properly. I'll talk about that. And that when they're on prescription opiates from the practice, they are not to use illegal drugs and they're not supposed to abuse alcohol. So by mentioning that people can have a urine test on a random basis, it makes it clear that um, first of all, the urine drug test is done at the beginning before the opiate is prescribed and that tells you if they're using other substances. That's actually like a really key, really, really key part of the process. Two, it normalizes the context that urine drug tests are just kind of part, they're a clinical tool. and doesn't mean we think you're being bad. It's just a clinical tool, and it's not meant to like single people out. So next I'm gonna talk about a case. Yes? Um, what do you do if THC shows up on the urine drug screen? What do other people do when THC shows up on the urine drug screen? Nothing. Nothing? Um, that's generally what's recommended. Yeah, that if people can't co- and in fact, it's really useful up front if the person tells you, oh, I don't use any substances and then the urine drug test comes out positive for THC, well, then it's like, okay, well, we're already not dealing with an open and honest relationship, so I'm not comfortable prescribing opiates for you if you're using THC and you're not telling me you're using THC. Now, it may be different if the person is on medical marijuana for, and I have patients on medical marijuana in the state of Vermont, so that might be a different situation. But. Yes? You do have to be careful, though, because there are other substances that will test positive. THC. OK. But, but we get confirmatory testing, so we know it is. Yeah, 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 it, I think, have to do a test. right. So yes, I'm going to talk about screens and confirmatory tests in, in a little bit. Yes? I like your approach. What's that? Okay, so you're, you're Fran. right? okay. So, what, what Fran recommended is that she tells people hey, I see you have THC in your urine. You got that from the uh, black market, so to speak, and or they grew it at home, I mean. Um, and I'm not going to prescribe something which could end up on the black market since you're already using something on the black market. So, I need to have a clean urine before I'm going to prescribe a controlled substance to you
0: is that X of time your drug will be: clean.
1: Okay, And then she gives people a, t- a self-contained uh, time to abstain from whatever substance she found. Okay, I'm gonna let me hold that, we could have a lunch discussion about what to do about marijuana when it shows up on a drug test because I want to get on to some of the other things. But this is, it is a real conundrum that comes up for all of us. So I'm gonna talk about Dave. And this is a, a real case, it's messy. I mean, I could not make it up. Let's put it that way, okay? And I've been taking care of him for over 12 years and it involves drugs, sex, rock and roll, actually karaoke. <laughs> um, it involves law enforcement, is the law enforcement person who's speaking this afternoon here yet? Okay. Um, it involves jail, parole, and a lot of deep issues for me as a provider, just in terms of trust, uh, betrayal, trusting again, and so it's a really complex case, if I had time I could like make a video or something, but I think you guys have all been there, so you're aware of how it's, it's really real, and there are a lot of red flags. Um, and I gotta say that uh, hindsight is 2020. I think we all recognize that in situations when we've been um, duped and scammed. So, if I were like also doing this as a soap opera, I'd have to give like a little trailer and then I'd have to give my own background. So, I'll give a little bit of background. And I worked in Ludlow, Vermont from 1985 to 1988. I was there when I was in the National Health Service Corps. I was in solo practice. And as part of my National Health Service Corps, I had a sign up in my office saying, I agreed to take care of anyone, regardless of ability to pay. That was part of my credo for the National Health Service Corps. So you get a lot of interesting people come in your door when you have a sign up like that. And I really learned how to just say no. I was a really young doctor. Half the patients told me they thought I looked like I was in high school. And people would come in, and one thing they would do is they would say, oh, my back's in spasm, or I have this really bad headache. And I'm not leaving until you give me a shot of Demerol now. I'd be like, oh. Well, one thing I did was I just didn't carry any injectables in the office. That was like my rule number one. Um, and this was in the era when people were getting shots of Demerol. And they were getting them a lot and for a lot of different things. And so um, people would show up in the ER for the Demerol. It was just kind of like a routine part of the practice. And we've really gone away from that. Um, But then also people would come in and say I have pain and I have an ulcer and only Percocet works for me. That's a red flag when only a name brand like Percocet will work. And then of course the people with the tooth abscess who couldn't afford the dentist and then transients and doctor shoppers. When you're in solo practice you see a lot of patients come in like this. I see some head nodding. that This stuff goes on today as well. Then I worked at DHMC in phase one, 1988 to 1995. And early on, I had a visit from a couple of DEA agents came in and said, is this your signature? <laughs> and no, it was not my signature. Um, this is when we were writing our opiates on paper scripts. And someone took and did lots of forgeries and went to lots of different drugstores. stores. And now I am so happy that we have the tamper-proof paper and dedicated printers. I think that's been a huge advance. But then, when you start working in a group, you get these people who want to call you at night or just after the office closes. And they're looking for, you know, Dr. X forgot to give them their medication, and they run out, and they're in pain. And we have a a policy when we're covering for each other, which is no after-hour call-ins, no weekend call-ins. And it's unfortunate for some people, but after that happens once, they understand that they make sure they have their medication before the office closes. I also got involved in supervising residents, and residents are, you know, in training, and I consider them magnets for misusers. Um, And while I was uh, uh, in that phase at working at Dartmouth, there was a really sad situation where an anesthesia resident was found dead in his call room. Yeah, he had done an overdose of fentanyl that he was skimming off cases in the OR. So that was really sobering. And just as a reminder that healthcare providers can skim from their patients and divert and be um, involved in situations of misuse. So then I left New Hampshire and moved to Buffalo, New York. And I worked in an inner city for six years. And I particularly chose the practice because you know, I'd been in New Hampshire, and Vermont, and I wanted to work in an inner city. And I was involved in a teaching hospital. And anyone here work in New York State or have worked in New York State? Yeah, okay, well you have something called triplicates there. And this was like, oh my God. To write a prescription for an opiate was really, really hard to do a schedule two. The nurse had to get the special prescription book out of a cupboard, which had two keys to get into it, and then you'd write for whatever it was, and if you made a mistake, like, you know, because someone was talking to you, and you couldn't cross it out. You had literally no cross-outs on this piece of paper. So it would take me like five minutes to, to do it, literally, to get it just right, and no one could interrupt me, which in the day of the life of a physician, you get interrupted like, I don't know, every 10, 15 seconds. So it was really hard to get it right. And... Anyway, so what happened was if you wrote for Schedule 3s, like Vicodin or Lorset or Lortab, you didn't have to use a triplicate book. So I had never written for Lortab before in my life, but there I was writing for Lortab because I didn't have to do the triplicate. If I just bring that up as an example, that pers- the prescriber's behavior can change depending on the context of where you are. And here we did with a lot of urine drug tests because I took care of patients who were going for liver transplants for the hepatitis C. And there we had the unexpected positives. People would not own up to smoking marijuana or using cocaine because if you did, you couldn't get a liver transplant. So they would say things like, "Oh, everyone on the corner smokes dope." Uh, So you know, I just walked by the corner and I got it. Yes, okay, that's a real common one. Or um, they would say, "I live upstairs from a crack house." You know, they smoke crack downstairs, so it's in the you know, it's in the air. Or they would be like um, the poppy seed bagel, and you know, things like that, okay. And then there would be uh, loss. You know, Buffalo is a windy city, so people would say, the wind blew off my fentanyl patch. I heard this more than once, and I couldn't recover it because it blew away. I was like, okay. As I, so I said, I, can't, I couldn't make this stuff up. And then there's a lot of theft. Um, and my patients didn't have lock boxes, and they would say things like, First they would be like, the grandson was in jail. Then the grandson would come home from jail and the drugs were gone. I mean, they would go through their underwear drawers. Everyone seemed to hide their medicine in their underwear drawer. But um, that was really, really sad. So we did not do any replacements um, unless people had a signed police report. And I really like on the Vermont website how they encourage people that if you are writing replacement that you have on the script replacement because I think that will definitely help to track those replacement and the misuse that's going on. So then I moved back to New Hampshire and I thought like everything was going to be calm and good. I wasn't. Okay, so I met Dave the first time and part of preparing for this talk was I went back and tried to figure out like how did it all start? How did Dave get on methadone? Um, so you know, in the old days he would have been on volume six patient, does everybody remember in the old days with the paper chart when they would bring in and you'd see a patient would come in, a new patient with volume six, and you would know, uh-huh. I se- I know I, I got a this is not going to be a quickie okay volume 6 so he he would have been a volume 6 guy so now I just went through the electronic notes and I went back to our initial visit in 2001 and he's, he was 60 at the time and he came in wanting viagra that's a pretty common primary care visit and he had a high school education he'd worked in construction he was he's a really really nice guy he's still a really nice guy and he was using alcohol socially, he wasn't binging, no problem drinking, he had a history of hypertension and gout, he was on total disability for depression and anxiety, so that's kind of a little red flag, and he was seeing a psychiatrist, and he was on a lot of psych drugs. He was on clonopin, Lexapro, Welbutrin, Ritalin, and, I'm gonna take a sip. He was also the caregiver for his bedridden, his bedridden wife, who um, he had been taken care of, and he ached all over, in all of his joints in his body, but he, didn't, he wasn't on any pain medication, he wasn't requesting any pain medication. All he wanted was Viagra, because what he was gonna do was go out on the weekends and go to the bar and you know, sing the karaoke, have some sex, and he just really needed kind of a release from all the stress of being a caregiver. So that's how he was coping. And so So I I gave gave him his Viagra and I I just gotta say that for those of us who take care of seniors, the issue of the caregiver and how the caregiver how they cope with the stress, this is pretty common that people develop relationships on the side. Um, And so I saw him over the next five years for his hypertension and his gout and his wife ultimately died and he grieved for that loss. And then in 2006 he had minor surgery and he was actually prescribed Vicodin um, by the surgeon, post-operatively, and he really liked how he felt on the Vicodin, it helped his back feel better. And so even though he was only given like, well he was actually given quite a bit of Vicodin, probably more than he needed, just for an immediate, he probably got like 30 or 40 pills, and he used those up in a fairly short period of time, and he, he just felt so much better. So he came in to me to say, you know, I feel better on Vicodin, um, and I would like to keep taking it. And so um, so some of the red flags are that the surgeon gave him more opiates than he really needed. Um, The opiate request initially, and this kind of surprised me when I went back through it, it really wasn't for a specific or severe pain. It was just that he felt better. And I would consider that this was an accidental rather than an intentional plan uh, for long-term opiates. And, you know, I played a part in it, certainly, because I did give him the Vicodin. I wish I could say now that I didn't give him the Vicodin, but at the time, I did. So this unintentional chronic therapy is when busy clinicians enter into chronic opioid therapy almost by accident. I mean, I really wasn't intending to prescribe Vicodin, but he asked for it, and I said yes. And this was, like, 2007. And by definition, this refers to after an acute event, when the patient stays on the opiates for more than three months. And, as you'll see, it's really, really difficult to establish good boundaries when they're not set at the outset. And So here we are, just a couple of months later, it's January 2007, and he had an urgent visit with a resident who I was working with. And she's someone who was going into oncology. Some residents who are going into oncology know that from the very beginning. She was really gung-ho on oncology. And somehow, when she came out of the, the office with him, she said that he had requested methadone, five milligrams a day. And when I asked her, like, well, why methadone? She said, well, he said it's because it helped him before, and it was better than Vicodin. So um, she, she was really gung-ho, and It ended up that she gave him a narcotic contract that day, she gave him the Vicodin prescription, but he didn't have his glasses with him, so he couldn't sign the opiate contract, so he took it home. But it's not unusual that patients are given opiate contracts to take it home, but this is a red flag. So why methadone? Patient requested it, said that it had worked. Um, In uh, retrospect, he did not have a thorough evaluation for the source of his pain. He did not have a urine drug test done that day prior to starting therapy, and he didn't have a signed contract either. So a lot of red flags, and um, I think some idealistic thinking. Because she also had written that um, if he had taken the methadone, that that would help his back pain, and if he helped his back pain, he'd be more active, and then maybe he could lose weight. As I said, he did weigh 328 pounds. So hindsight's 2020. He comes in two weeks later, though, that he ran out early from the methadone. And I think for the younger generation, experimenting with drug doses is something that they feel entitled to do. This whole idea that I'm going to control when you increase the dose of your medication, that doesn't go over real well with a lot of patients. So um, that's just a control issue that you have to work out with people. But he ran out early, he had increased the dose on his own, and when I look through there, Um, A urine drug test had been ordered, but he didn't stop and do it before he left the office. So red flag, dose escalation by the patient and not the provider. Um, By the time he had his third visit in February of 2007, he did bring in the signed contract, but he never did his urine drug test, and he said his pain was much better. He really felt a lot better on methadone, 10 milligrams a day. So if people have pain despite their opioids, a few things to think about. Is it opioid-resistant pain? Are they getting tolerant? Is it this opioid-induced hyperalgesia? And just in terms of patient safety, I want to mention here that the risk of an overdose is greatest shortly after an initial opioid prescription or right after a refill. And there is this issue of people taking medications more than prescribed, if one is good, two is better, and kind of stacking up doses, particularly like with a long-acting drug like methadone. So, oh, in uh, March, he ran out early again, and so he had a drug-free week, and then he realized in retrospect how much better he felt on the methadone, so then he requested methadone, 15 milligrams a day. And what he did was he was feeling so well on the methadone that he got kind of motivated, and he took his RV to upstate New York where he went fishing. See, this is like the, you know, he couldn't make it up. So he would go fishing. This was initially ice fishing in March, and then it turned into like just like water fishing. And for a couple of months in there, he was returning monthly to, quote, pick up his mail and pick up his opiate prescription. Um, this really felt uncomfortable. This is all obviously some aberrant behavior. There's a paradox between needing methadone to manage pain and the long car trips to go fishing. And lo and behold, he got arrested. Um, just a very short time later. And what happened was he said a friend of his talked him into selling his methadone to an undercover police officer in New York State. So he then uh, went to prison for a week. And while he was in prison, he became, you know, this guy does have long-term psychiatric problems. He had no medication, none of his psych drugs. And he just became, he totally kind of decompensated from the mental health. Uh, He lost 20 pounds and he, when he came back to the Upper Valley, he went immediately to the emergency department. And in those notes, he really played up his role, and with me too as a victim that you know he got scammed by this other person, and you know like poor him. And um, I of course was angry at him. You know I'd been I'd written some prescriptions, and he took my prescriptions and gave them to the undercover cop. So I was I was I was angry. And I think another red flag when I look back in retrospect is that he went back to his personal psychiatrist who did not refer him to an addiction specialist. And addiction specialists back in 2007 were a little hard to find. I think There's more of them now. I think there's more awareness about addiction. But in retrospect, I think we could have done better. So I just want to give the, the, the financials in terms of why some of the diversion occurs. The retail cost of a 30-day supply, it really varies. Uh, methadone, you can get 30 tablets of methadone for $10, very inexpensive. Um, oxycodone, a uh, one month 120 tablets cost $67. MS Contin, 30 tablet, uh, 60 tablets cost $46. Fentanyl patch are much more expensive, uh, $163 for 10 patches. This is the retail cost if you walked into the DH pharmacy. Now, the Single dose street values blew me away when I did this research. I had no idea that one uh, 30 milligram tablet of methadone is worth uh, $50 on the street. Yeah, so think about it. If you bought 30 for $10 and you sold um, each one for $50, that's a big markup. That's a, that money would pay for home heating oil and a lot of other necessities that people face. Now, Dilaudid, Um, When I was in Buffalo, Dilaudid was a keenly sought-after drug. People would work hard to say that Dilaudid was the only drug that worked for them. Very high value on the street, and obviously it depends on the demand in terms of where people are selling the drugs, but the range is between $30 and $50 for a 4 milligram Dilaudid. Um, Morphine goes for less, uh, 30 milligrams of morphine for 15, oxycodone, a 5 of oxycodone for 15, And I had no idea a fentanyl patch would go for that much money. And it's based by the milligram. As you go up, it's worth more. Um, And obviously, people aren't putting the patch on their skin. They're extracting the fentanyl to use it for injection. Codeine is really not worth much. And what I heard from Ben Nordstrom was that the Vicodin is so plentiful in the area that it essentially is worth zero. That was, that was the quote. Um, so there's a range out there. So when people come in looking for specific medications, I think it helps us to be aware of what the uh, retail value is. Oh Yes. Me. Um, on the radio recently, I heard that heroin is becoming cheaper than prescription
0: drugs. Yes. Heroin is becoming cheaper than prescription drugs.
1: Yes. Yes, I've heard the same thing as well. Okay, so my patient went drug-free for a few years. Um, He was on parole. Uh, No opiates for the next two years. And, you know, lo and behold, he did fine. He was active. Uh, He lost 30 pounds. He had a steady relationship. Things were really looking up. Blood pressure was better. Um, But then, in 2009, he started to develop disabling left buttock pain uh, due to his spinal stenosis. He still weighed about maybe uh, 300 at that point. So he started going to the pain clinic, and they tried everything. Uh, Injections, more injections, more injections, no real improvement. So ultimately he saw a surgeon, and in July he had a minimally invasive laminectomy. I went and visited him in the hospital. I was really leery about the pain management post-op. He got short doses of oxycodone, and it was amazing, like five milligrams of oxycodone took care of his pain. I mean, he did not need big doses of pain medicine. However, he had a dural tear as part of the surgery, so he needed to have a second surgery a month later, and things went downhill after that. He was in persistent pain, really nonfunctional. So he goes to a new pain specialist, and he prescribed him methadone, five milligrams twice a day, with oxycodone for breakthrough pain. This would be kind of a typical thing a pain specialist would do for chronic pain. But I actually like picked up the phone and said, hey, do you know, even though I, I had it in our old problem list, that this patient has had a conviction for selling methadone in the past. And he's like, well, I, I, yeah, I thank you for sharing that with me, but you know, he's really in a lot of pain, so I think we should go ahead and give him the methadone. So he wrote the prescription. I guess the point here is that we work as teams. You know, We put our people, we put our heads together. And in a complex patient, particularly someone who's had this prior diversion, I think it really helps me as a primary care provider to work with a pain specialist. So he wanted to give him a second chance. And then we, so we did a urine drug test that day. He had oxycodone, which he had been prescribed. But then a couple months later, we did another random urine drug test. And he told me, before we do the drug test, we asked, when did you take your medicine? He said, yes, 9 o'clock last night. Dr. Krasnoff, I took that methadone, 5 5 milligrams and I took five milligrams of oxycodone and I took that methadone two hours before I came in and the urine drug test was totally negative for opiates. Totally negative, number one and on the screen and then I did the confirmatory test, that was negative. So when I told him that number one was negative, I said, let's test you again. Number two, also negative. So I told him I had to fire the treatment. I was not gonna prescribe any more opiates for him, but I wasn't firing him as a patient. I would still care for him, he'd been opiate free, he had done fine off of opiates, you know, we could offer physical therapy and stuff like that, Um, but, and I was kind of scared. You see, he's a big guy, and I was gonna be like, you know, laying down the law, so I actually had our nurse manager go in the room with me, so it wasn't just um, me alone in the room, you know, we're gonna have this conversation, and I was kind of shocked, he was kind of like, okay, no opiates, you know, I, I'll, I'll survive, you know, I don't fire me, I, I still want you to be my doctor, I trust you, um, and he kind of disputed it, he said there's something wrong with the test, something wrong with the lab. Okay, so let's talk about the drug tests because they're not perfect, they are not perfect. And it's really important, I guess I'm underlining this, you need to do it on the first visit, all patients who are new to treatment, as I said before, routine use, clinical tool, they have to be, you have to do them unannounced, you don't tell someone, hey, you're coming in today for your drug test. It just has to be that they show up. It's going to happen today. Now, the window of detection for most drugs is one to three days. So the methadone the night before should have been there in the morning. And it's important to collect it at the beginning of the visit, before the prescription is written, because this is the problem at the beginning of the case, where he was going to, quote, leave the drug test on his way out, and he just would walk out of the office without leaving the urine. So now I'm on to it you got to have the i have to see the urine drug test before i write the prescription and it's really important for people to document when the opioids were last taken because we get into the problem where people will quote go to the lab to do it but the lab doesn't you know have that information so i really like to get these done in the office and it's important to do them if someone says that the pain medicine's not working that's a really important time to do it and if someone's uh, level of function is going down and they say they need more cuz they're just not able to be as active, that's another opportunity. So the frequency with which you do these are, is really individual and it depends on your level of suspicion and the level of risk. There's two types of tests. The screening is the immunoassay and this is back in one hour where I work. And this is useful in the ED, it's useful if someone has a work-related injury and you're suspicious they might be using drugs. They use these in the birthing pavilion when people give birth. They wanna know is there, um, kind of a quick screen. The confirmatory can also identify a specific drug, and this is the types of tests. They use this gas chromatography. This is sent to a reference lab. DH uses the Mayo lab, and it takes longer to return. Depends on where you are, how quickly you can get your confirmatory back. Here's urine drug test 101. Key point, there's a lower limit of detection for all drugs. So you really need to look at those cutoffs, because sometimes if a person is taking a really low dose, um, they might be below the limit of detection. Consult the lab for any questions. I have got to highlight this, that there's going to be someone, we have this fabulous um, uh, PhD named Hong Ki Lee, but all labs you can have reference to someone who can help you interpret your results. You also have to learn which drugs don't show up in the screen, because even in the opiate screen, fentanyl, for example, does not show up. So you have to order a specific test for fentanyl. For buprenorphine, also you need a specific test. And if there's a discrepancy between the screen and the confirmatory test, it's the confirmatory test that counts. So that's why sometimes things, for example, um, the opiate screen might come out negative, but on the confirmatory you might see that there's um, oxycodone. So in terms of general categories of abnormal tests, you might have the absence of the prescribed opiate, like in Dave's situation. You might have the presence of an additional non-prescribed controlled substance, where someone took someone else's medication to help their pain. You might detect an illicit substance, like the THC or um, cocaine. And then there's a whole category of adulterated urines, which I don't have time to go into today. But the the abnormal tests are probably um, not as black and white as I once thought. In terms of the unexpected negatives, there's a whole differential diagnosis to continue. Um, Usually if the drug is absent, it means the person did not take it within the last 72 hours. But some people can binge on their prescription and run out early. There might be monetary issues where they couldn't afford the medication, so they might have taken it for the three other weeks, but then some people can't even get a whole month at a time. You know, They're literally buying it week by week. They could be diverting. Um, Some people are um, what are called inducers, and they have rapid metabolism. So there are some situations Um, where that is the case. Sometimes the drug is present, but it's below the cutoff of the assay. Sometimes we just ordered the wrong test, and there can be laboratory issues as well. So it's actually more complex than what I once thought. In terms of possible diversion, by definition, it's an intentional removal of a medication from a legitimate dispensing channel for the illicit sale or distribution. And here I just want to make the point that the negative Urine drug test does not mean that they're definitely diverting. It's a, diffi- it's a very difficult conversation, but we do have to leave the door open that we could be wrong, offer addiction services in some situations or depending on what the scenario is. But if there's any chance of per- diversions going on, I feel like it's our responsibility to not prescribe, to do more research. We're not having to continue prescribing if it feels uncomfortable. we in my situation where the urine drug test was negative. So, we go forward. He's now drug-free once again for 10 months. No opiate prescriptions, but he does pretty well. He loses 50 pounds through diet and exercise. He goes to the local pool. And um, even though he was in this intractable pain, he he actually got better probably from his surgery. Then he tripped and he fell. So whereas before he had left-sided back pain, now he had right-sided back pain. So this time, I get him right up to the pain clinic, try some of these steroid injections, but he's no better. And so what he does with the pain clinic physician is that he starts to dispute the prior negative UDTs. And he said, you know, there was some problem with that, and he was like crying and begging for opiates, got really dramatic in there, and the pain clinic said, he's really a poor risk for opiates. And I'm like, yes, you get it, he's a really poor risk, and he's done fine off of them at periods of time. But the pain clinic physician decided to give him a third chance. Yep, he did. And he gave him a fentanyl patch. And what he did initially was he like would make him come in every week and check that the fentanyl patch was on his body. And he was also under psychiatric care, which he continued. I tried to get him into addiction services at this time, but it wasn't covered by his insurance. So uh, within a month, the pain physician increased his fentanyl patch to 50 micrograms and he felt much better again. And here we are three years later. He's on a 75 microgram patch. He takes no short acting opiates. He is on Cymbalta. In terms of his benefit, his life has really improved. He, um, his pain he describes as a four over 10. His weight's down to 270. He works 20 hours a week. He's in a stable relationship. He's now tested randomly, um, he only tests for positive, no other, uh, positive for his fentanyl, uh, no other substances. So that's kind of the messiness of real life and collaborative care um, for someone who, um, I think in terms of his uh, pain and his function, is benefiting from his opiate therapy. So what are some of the lessons learned? One is that universal enforcement of the opiate treatment agreement from the outset is really important and I can't emphasize that enough. I think it's really important that we establish realistic treatment goals when we have that initial prescription of opiates, and keep talking about what is realistic to expect for you. Um, the issues surrounding the urine drug tests are really complex, and it helps to understand the issues with your lab before you order the tests. And I noticed in the Vermont white paper they talked about You know, there was a lot of controversy about how beneficial are they really, should there be a centralized lab in Vermont because you've got people getting different tests at different labs and how does the information translate from one to the other. And for me as a provider, it's been really hard to trust him again after betrayals, but I've had to learn how to just hang in there and do that and I think that has taught me some things. In terms of safe disposal of opiates, um, there's a big push uh, regionally here to keep all drugs out of the water supply, and people are recommended to fold the fentanyl patches in half and put them in the trash away from small children and pets to prevent reuse by putting them in a container that's filled with kitty litter or coffee grounds. And the police stations in Hanover and also in Hartford, Vermont, have 24 access to mounted boxes for safe disposal of opiates. Um, they request no liquids or syringes, but for the opiates themselves. So this is an issue of, uh, you know, people are worried about having these opiates in the home that they can go and be safely disposed of. So back to our roles. You know, we want to be clinicians. Sometimes we're in the role of cop, uh, deal maker, judge. And here's a new framework where uh, Dr. Nicolaitis recommends, and this is a really helpful article in Pain Medicine in 2011, to try to use a benefit-to-harm framework to make decisions regarding opiate treatment, that when we're prescribing them, we're trying to judge the treatment and not the patient, trying to get out of the role of judging the patient. But think about the treatment. Is it benefiting? What's the benefit to harm? And try to shift away from a role of, of trying to just make a deal or be a cop. And so asking each time, do the benefits of this treatment outweigh the potential untoward effects and the risks in the patient or to society as a whole? It's challenging. So if people have questions, I'd be happy to answer them. And please let us get to you with the mic. Okay. Yes. A lot of people may know this when you do a drug screen and it comes back positive for cocaine substances legally what has to be done then do you guys have to report it or what actions have to be taken I'll let other people answer how they handle that I don't report that we're not reporting okay And I'm not talking about the drug screening that's done for employment, for example. The DOT, they have all separate rules where the sample is taken in a special bathroom where it can't be adulterated, and that's kind of a whole separate level. I mean, we're doing the drug tests in cases like Lisa mentioned. I mean, there might have been opportunities to do drug tests to see, okay, here's this patient. We're not sure. Is she getting the drug or not getting the drug? Um, there's caregivers involved. You can do a urine drug test and see, oh, in fact, there is no drug in this person's Body, So something happened. There was a misuse going on. We've both been involved with the situation with the facility where we thought someone was getting their pain medicine and it turned out it was being diverted. So it would have been helpful in that situation. Because it's hard when you have patients that are confused. They sometimes don't know what the pill looks like or they think it's their blue pill, but it's not their blue pill. Yeah. Other questions? Yes.
0: So just something to go along with that, a few weeks ago I went to a um, showing of The Hungry Heart, which Bess O'Brien did a documentary with um, Dr. Fred Holmes, huh. and I don't know if anybody else saw that, it was on the other end of the spectrum with the children, mm-hmm. and he was a pediatrician, That one of his kids went to him and asked for help because he was shown the opiates and then got addicted, oh. um, and he went on to then get his... Suboxone license mm-hmm. and he treated several, several children. But they're going around the state of Vermont and New Hampshire showing this um, hour and a half documentary, and then four or five of those people in the show are on stage and you can do this question and answer. Wow. And it just really goes along well with this program for me to put it all together because it you know it can start at age eight, you know. Absolutely. And then it just balloons into this ungodly issue one of the prescribers gave out 70 cassette for a cyst removal and that's what started hers because she
1: found out how good she felt and she had 68 pills left that's right and so people do feel better they get this dopamine surge i would say the other thing is sometimes the electronic prescribing um, makes this worse because i noticed with the electronic prescribing like i wanted to give someone um, oxycodone, an elderly person who has a similar patient to one of Lisa's with the arthritic pain and I wanted her to give a trial of 10 pills to take and I was going to see her back in two weeks. So I was going to do the you know, half a pill at night. I do the same thing that Dr. Formansky does, the oxycodone 2.5 at bedtime. And so when I went to prescribe oxycodone, it filled it in like automatically with like 120 pills. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, why would I want to give anybody 120 pills of oxycodone? But it's initially kind of assuming the computer, you know, through Epic is assuming that I want to give someone 100. So you have to be careful. I mean, you have to really scrutinize that and you have to take that cautious step of, No, I only want 10 pills, so it's like three extra clicks for me to make the 120 go away and have it just be 10. But I think prescribers with these electronic systems, I notice, and I see a lot of heads are nodding, that it almost kind of like force feeds you into prescribing bigger doses. And then, of course, there's the people who want the 90 days for things because, you know, they want to send the prescription away. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a risky treatment. You know, we're just going to do this. This is a time-limited treatment. You know, we're just doing this for a short time up front. Yeah. Yeah, actually yesterday I had a problem with one of the insurance companies um, they are actually now sending a verification to the office for any type of you know controlled substance that's faxed to them because their fear is that um, patients are filling it on their own in addition to submitting it to them run that by me there there it was um, one of the insurance companies yeah. and we fax it directly to the fill uh-huh. you know but their fear is because it was faxed oh, from the office that they could have taken the paper that script. They could have had the hard copy and filled it somewhere else. I'm sure that station. scam goes on. So yeah. they send us a verification. Can we fill this script? Mm. Well, I think that might be a, a very valuable safeguard. Yeah. Yes, Peggy. Um, Several years ago, early on in the whole issue
0: of um, pregnant women with narcotics, Mm -hmm. we had a woman who came in with that problem. And so um, we had urine drug screens done on the OB unit, and the OB unit nurses were not very familiar with this type of urine test. So they just left it on the patient's bedside table and said, here, get me a urine sample when you can. So I think sometimes if you're not used to doing these kind of urine screens, you really need to understand, you have to witness and watch and do all those things. The other interesting thing that happened at that time, and I'm assuming it was followed up on hopefully, was the confirmatory test came back negative and the patient had been in our hospital for like five days getting observed opiates. So it was very strange that it came back negative. So sometimes when you get odd things like that, you really need to follow up with the company that does the testing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes?
0: I have a question about pain specialists. You mentioned collaborating. Yes. And um, I don't know what you do in this situation, but I have sent people to a pain clinic because I've kind of reached a point where I'm not sure what to do and I feel like it's escalating out of control and there's a lot of push to it. more more and more more is better. Mm-hmm. And what happens sometimes is when they see this pain specialist um, they don't take them on long term, they send them back to me with a recommendation and sometimes it's for way more than I felt comfortable prescribing. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of left in this quandary where I sent them to an expert in the field, but now I'm left having to prescribe and monitor and have them come back and I don't necessarily feel that it was the right
1: choice. Oh, I've been there too. I feel your pain. Um, I would say what I often try to do is uh, give the pain specialist uh, a framework for what, what I'm interested in, how they could help me uh, manage the case, particularly if I think maybe some type of injection may help. Um, this is a situation where I think it's really helpful to pick up the phone. I can imagine from their point of view, they see pain all day long, and it can be... Um, um, you know, it might be hard for them to figure out what we really want in in the particular consultation. But I have also had, you know, benefit with some of the injections or trials of different medication uh, or different ways of doing injection that I hadn't thought about. But um, I think it really helps to have a phone call with them afterwards to get a clear understanding of who's going to prescribe what and for how long. And to see if you agree with it. I mean, like with any consultation, it is just a consultation. It's ultimately up to us as a primary care provider to integrate that into our practice and figure out how it's going to help us in our long-term management. But definitely pain, man- pain specialists don't follow the patient forever. It is usually a time-limited thing and not a kind of a co-management situation. And like Dr. Fermansky says, sometimes you have to just wean people away from the specialist. We're going to do one last question over here. Um, are you around for a little bit Yeah, yeah I'm around for lunch, too. I'm not sure if it's a question or just a comment. Um, when the patient returns after giving them a short acute prescription for narcotics and they say, I feel really good on this, it's very important to clarify and get more detailed oriented in what they mean by feeling good. Because oftentimes, if I get more specific about, okay, so how's the pain for that ankle sprain or that apal fracture? They'll say, oh, that's all better, I'm fine, but I still want my prescription. <laughs> that, that's a whole different issue, and so are you missing un, untreated depression or other issues? It's a dialogue time of, so that you don't get into that trouble of chronically prescribing a narcotic for something besides an acute pain. We see this in young adults a lot. Um, that in is, I agree with, that's a take home message for the talk. I mean, I think that that was part of the issue that came into play with this particular case was he got that post-op Vicodin, and he felt good on it. And I think I didn't have the awareness at the time. I mean, he was seeing his psychiatrist. This is an issue of the, you know, the psychiatrist was uh, doing the mental health part of it, and he was putting a lot of pressure on me. And it seemed like the path of least resistance. You know how it can be. You're behind. Are you going to spend time, really delving into what's going on here. Um, maybe you say, well, I'll give it to him today, but I'll see him back again in a few weeks. We'll talk about it then. So it becomes sometimes a, a difficult conversation, and it is our role as prescribers to have that difficult conversation and to learn more about what's really going on. So I thank you. That's a really valuable comment. Thank you all. The questions yeah, thank you. are great. Excellent.